0: This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. Your time is your greatest currency, make no mistake, and this fact of life does not go unnoticed by the creators on whom you spend your time. So thank you for spending your time listening and learning along with me on this podcast. Please note that the best growth tool for podcasts like this one is Word of Mouth. If you believe in what's being said and strived for here, please consider pushing this out to all corners of your social media, as well as leaving five-star reviews, multiple even, on whatever podcast service you use. Links for this podcast are in the show notes. Michael VI hasn't even been emperor for a year yet, and the empire is already whispering for new leadership. There are those who wish to see him deposed, who already have an idea who they want to replace him with, too will this guy want the gig at all? Well, time will tell. But one thing is for sure, this guy in question is ready to fight for the empire he loves, whether he becomes emperor or not. Today's episode, episode 103, is entitled The Reluctant Emperor. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Historian John Carr, in his book, The Komneni Dynasty, mentions Isaac Komnenos's quote-unquote, terrifying scowl. This scowl was widely known and acted as a wonderfully effective form of discipline. In fact, this was Isaac's typical facade. So when, in late August of 1057, Isaac, with his rebel army at his back, well, we can easily assume that this scowl was piercing a hole into the high walls of Constantinople, miles and miles ahead of him. To think that, as contemporary chronicler Michael Sellis writes, quote, recruits, without the least hesitation, poured in every man like a runner, trying to get there before his comrades, end quote. Well, to think that this massive army was very publicly approaching the capital city, and the emperor didn't care to even acknowledge, well, That was another slap in Isaac's face, to be quite honest. If the emperor wasn't taking this seriously, what's to say that Isaac's entire rebellion was even worth the effort? Was there something Isaac and his officers, his generals, didn't know that Michael VI did? Well, just the night before, in an open field between the cities of Nicaea and Nicomedia, Isaac probably stood outside of his tent staring around him. Tents and sleeping bodies stretched all, stretched out all around him, so far that he couldn't even see where they all ended. Carr writes, quote, Staging a coup was a serious life-risking business, and as little as possible had to be left to chance, end quote. Had he actually thought of everything? Every road in and out of the city was blocked. The greatest city on the planet in the year 1057 was completely shut off from the Eastern world. Isaac pored over his lists and strategies and notes and maps well into that night, all the while pondering if this was exactly what needed to happen in this moment. In the moonlight, he decided to risk everything to see Michael VI deposed and the Eastern Roman Empire's borders duly guarded. The military had been used, abused, and disrespected for the better part of 30 years. The time to make a stand had come. From across the Bosporus, he organized his men into units. His most experienced and battle hardened in leadership roles, in order to, as Carr puts it, quote, to mitigate the phenomenon of entire units breaking in battle. End quote. I mean, Isaac Komnenos again, was a single-minded military mind on a scale few have matched or eclipsed. In history, really. Comnenus insisted on military discipline seldom seen until the modern age. Thinking it all through just one more time, Isaac decided that what he was doing was exactly what he was supposed to do. Now, as for Emperor Michael VI, he was blissfully naive of what he'd started. Even when the reports came from the highly secretive moves of his topmost generals across the Bosporus and neighboring Nicaea, Michael VI refused to accept it as any legitimate threat. He was emperor. Of course no one would try to overthrow him. Michael Sellis, on the other hand, was getting really, really antsy. He tried to convince Michael VI to suck up a bit to the patriarch, Michael Cerularius over at the Hagia Sophia, because reports immediately floated inside the Hagia Sophia itself. But again, the emperor dismissed such silliness. However, Celus was able to convince Michael VI to get some loyal, loyalist support from out west. And the one he received was an interesting counterbalance to Isaac Komnenos. See, Isaac was married to Catherine of Bulgaria, Ekaterina. No doubt, an integral component to Basil II's subjugation and treaties with the Bulgars before his death. Catherine was the daughter of Ivan Vladislav, the last czar of Bulgaria. Okay, due to this connection, it was imperative that the emperor made a move to secure the Bulgars' loyalty, because, for those geography experts listening, you'll notice that Isaac was across the strait from Constantinople on the east, while Bulgaria was to the city's north-northwest. If Isaac was able and willing, he might be able to pull some strings and pinch the city from both sides until it succumbed to Isaac's demands. Michael Celis' pleas to the emperor were thankfully heard, and Isaac Komnenos' brother-in-law, Prince Aaron, was brought in to protect the emperor's interests. The nearby western Byzantine forces led by Basil Tarkaniates, joined incoming lines of Bulgars and Pechenegs, again led by Prince Aaron, together marching from one side of the city to the other, boarding ships side by side, and crossing to the opposite side of the Bosporus at the port city of Nicomedia. It was here that the forces set up camp within sight of Isaac's forces, and Emperor Michael VI places his predecessor's trusted advisor, at the helm of the whole operation, a eunuch named Theodorus. The place is no longer there, but it's said to be the town of Petro, situated somewhere on the Hadean plains between the city of Nicopolis and Nicaea, where Isaac Comnenos has pitched camp already, and the stage is set for a battle for the future of the empire. As the emperor's army approached the rebel army, Isaac must have thought everything that had brought him to this point. Who would have thought that one of the empire's most loyal and steadfast protectors in all of the 11th century would have currently been standing mere miles away from an emperor he would soon be deposing? The why behind this rebellion was directly due to the gaping chasm that currently wedged itself between the military and the political elite, namely the emperor. With such unease and disunity between Byzantine leaders, it's no wonder the empire found itself in dire straits in the 1050s. Carr writes, quote, The loyalists were impeded from the start by questionable morale. There were daily desertions to the rebel camp and the irresolution of Theodorus, end quote. Now, Theodorus ordered a successful operation to destroy a major bridge crossing the Sicaria River severing any connection between Isaac Komnenos' own family lands and his current position. Komnenos' forces no longer had an escape route, nor did they have access to Komnenos' wealth and assistance back home. It was August 20th, 1057. A Thursday, actually. And Theodorus, positioned in the center directly across from Isaac Komnenos, ordered an attack on Isaac's left flank the flank led by General Kekomenos. The imperial right flank led by Basil Tarcaniates, just when Kekomenos received the rush of enemy soldiers, just when the clangs of swords and resonating booms of shields smashing into one another sounded on Isaac's left, screams of thousands echoed from Isaac's right. He turned his head just in time to see imperial forces led by a man named Prince Aaron. A man he knew, his brother-in-law. But what's interesting about this flank were the hundred strong contingents of Frankish mercenaries all following the war cries of one Randolph the Frank. Just another example of how the Franks and Normans were throughout the entire century making themselves seen and heard in the European South and even the Middle East before the Crusades. It was men like Randolph the Frank, who helped lay the groundwork for the reputation of Franks and Normans, that will play a major role in how Muslims experienced, again, what we call the First Crusade. With both of his flanks collapsing and retreating back to camp, Isaac Komnenos must have seen the image of his head on a stake at the main gate in Constantinople. His left flank turned and tried to make a stand while the right flank was on an almost constant flight away from the Imperial forces. Isaac had a choice to make. Should he retreat altogether and recollect himself and his forces? With the left flank standing firm once again, finally, thankfully, should he devote some of his center over to the right? Either way, there would be a deficit felt somewhere within his lines no matter what he did. His right flank was clearly running away, and while Isaac was deciding on next steps, he noticed The Imperial soldiers, attacking his right flank, they suddenly stopped. As the rebel forces continued to flee back to camp, the Imperial forces led by Prince Aaron stopped, gathered weapons from the dead and dying all around, and then regrouped. It was a strange, strange move. Why did they not continue to chase the rebel forces backward? But this is exactly what Isaac Komnenos needed. He quickly rerouted soldiers in his own center lines over to his right and ordered an immediate push forward. It was at this time that Theodorus pushed his center forward, and they began engaging Komnenos' central forces. Now, this wasn't a full-on smash like, like the flanks were, were experiencing, more like just the feeling it all out, you know, the, the hit-and-run, 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 but Isaac's attention had to be diverted away from his flanks and toward those directly in front of him, for obvious reasons. Now, believe it or not, the chronicler, Michael Sellos, was actually in this battle himself. And it was at this point that he found himself full-on in the heat of the imperial right flank, that is, uh, Isaac's left. To be clear, Sellos was fighting on the side he thought had the best chance of winning, which was the emperor's. But it was at this point that Cellos reported getting speared by two Rus mercenaries fighting on behalf of the rebel Komnenos, but the spearheads lodged themselves harmlessly in Cellos's armor, and having thought Cellos dead, the mercenaries passed by him saving his life. Celos would go on to serve future emperors and be one of the most important sources of the 11th century Constantinople. Albeit, like everything else, Celos was also writing not on behalf of the truth but on behalf of himself and his benefactors, but we'll, we'll get to some more Celis, uh for sure. This bit with Michael Cellus occurred around the same time that Comnenos' rebel left flank began pushing the imperial right back. They pushed them so far back that before the Imperials knew it, Comnenos' troops under Kekomenos were ransacking the Imperial base camp. It was an embarrassing surprise route by the rebels and Theodorus was none too pleased. This bit of the battle occurred on the high ground for all to see too. Others saw rebel forces ransacking and destroying the enemy camp gave rise to a renewed confidence that was woefully fading away by this time in the battle. Isaac ordered his right flank to follow suit and pursue Prince Aaron back to the imperial center himself. It's said, according to the records of both Cellos and a chronicler named Ateniates, that one of Isaac's top men, Nikephoros Botaniates, different, <laughs> engaged in hand-to-hand combat against the terrifying and powerful leader, Randolph the Frank. Now, Randolph's sword was said to have broken under the weight of Botaniates' hammer blows, and he was forced to submit to Nikephoros, Botaniates. Randolph the Frank was taken prisoner, and Isaac had stripped the army of its rabid, animalistic French side. When victory was very clearly Comnenos's, the eunuch general Theodorus ordered the imperial army to flee back to the capital, while Comnenos celebrated his victory in nearby Nicaea. Within the month, after numerous attempts to get the emperor to see reason and simply abdicate the throne peacefully, it took the advice of patriarch Michael Serellarius to convince the emperor to save face and save the empire from further destruction and death. So how's that going to play out here? And this is, you know, in the script for the show, this all the research that I've done, I just kind of labeled this part the meeting. And you'll know what I mean. It's There's really no word for this meeting. It's just an incredibly important meeting. So here's the next portion. Now, word reached Constantinople by sundown. Michael VI couldn't believe his ears. We find Michael Selos by his side that night as well, offering more counsel. Theodorus refused to try to engage Isaac's forces again. So Michael VI was left with only one choice. Send an emissary to Isaac's camp and negotiate a peace. And who did Michael VI choose to lead such a mission? Well, Michael Sellis, of course. Celis's nerves had to be frayed to the extreme, having just fought against the rebels that very day. He was now tasked with freely entering their camp with a message from the Emperor the rebels were attempting to depose. You can see his, his problem. Sellis was already unsure whether he'd walk back out of the camp in the first place. But he was also a shrewd and cunning man. He knew a bad deal when he saw one. And the facts of the matter are this. These must have been the things going through his mind. One, Emperor Michael VI had publicly humiliated not only Isaac Komnenos but the entire military by association. Two, the military had risen against him, and they had placed one of their best at the head of this so-called revolution. Three, that very revolutionary army just succeeded in securing a resounding victory over Michael VI's only hope of squashing the rebellion where it stood. And finally, Isaac Komnenos, as John Carr writes, quote, was on a winning streak, and why should he listen to the entreaties of an emperor on the ropes, end quote. So, if Michael Sellis was going on this (laughs) insane mission, let's be honest, then he insisted that he be joined by two others— to add weight to the occasion and maybe deter Isaac from offing a single official, let alone three. Theodorus Alopos was a prominent Byzantine senator, a man Sellus describes as, quote, the most distinguished and sensible man, end quote. And the other, Constantine Lecutis, a respected intellectual and priest who resided within the city limits and was widely known. Four days after the Battle of Petro, Isaac Komnenos remained where he was. Why move on when no one is left to move him? A statement in and of itself. Michael Theodore, Theodorus Olopos, and Constantine Lekutis sailed in a trireme across the Bosporus and traveled a short distance to the rebel camp. Isaac Komnenos and his comrades had been expecting an, an envoy, but to see three of Constantinople's most prominent men entering the camp, well, kind of surprised them. Isaac was a gracious host and received them with honors befitting their stations. This, of course, took Selos off guard. You see the game being played here. Selos and Isaac were both playing chess, while Michael VI was back home still trying to figure out how to play checkers. Carr says that the officers who received the three envoys, quote, told them that they abhorred sh- shedding their countrymen's blood and longed for an end to the conflict, end quote. By the time they arrived at Isaac's tent, they had to wait a very short time before being beckoned inside. Both Carr and Cellos narrated this next bit well, but I'm not kidding, Sellos wrote things exceptionally well. I can't help but wonder how many other primary sources from like a thousand years ago were written like he wrote his that either I haven't had the privilege to come across yet or, or even those that never survived to us. Sorry, Carr, but I think I'm going to pass the ball off to Cellos for this next part here. Quote, The emperor, therefore, after waiting a few days, asked me to come to terms with Komnenos. I was to lead an embassy on his behalf with secret proposals to the enemy. We then received letters for Isaac from the emperor, or rather we ourselves concocted these messages and composed them in a form as expedient as might be. Our object was to effect a compromise. Isaac was to wear the crown and insignia of the Caesar, and yet at the same time remain subject to the emperor." So, Sellus himself says, that Emperor Michael VI essentially would have his envoys offer a compromise that kept Isaac Komnenos just below him in the hierarchy, a position known as Caesar. A throwback to the ancient customs, of course. But Michael would remain the emperor in name and in effect. I mean, it's not a bad deal. Sellos continues, quote, We were greeted at once, even before the conference with Isaac began, and they received us most cordially. One after another, the leaders of this army came up and addressed us in the pleasantest manner. Kissing our heads and hands, they protested with tears that though they wore on their brows the garlands of victory, they were weary of shedding the blood of their fellow countrymen and of bringing destruction upon their kinsfolk. Then, putting us in their midst, they escorted us to the tent of their general, for he too was encamped there, like themselves, in the open air." After dismounting themselves, they made us do likewise and bade us wait outside. Permission was then granted us to enter the tent alone, for the sun had already gone down, and Isaac was unwilling to allow a big assembly in the imperial tent. He greeted us as we came in, seated on a high throne, with a small bodyguard in attendance. He was dressed not so much like an emperor, as a general. He rose slightly as we entered and bade us be seated. No questions were asked about the purpose of our visit, but after a few brief remarks and explanation of his own campaign, and after sharing a drink with us, he allowed us to retire to our own tents, which had been pitched very near his. We went out in amazement. The man had made no long speeches at this first meeting. His only inquiries concerned our voyage. Had we had a smooth voyage— Nothing more. So after dispersing to our respective tents and sleeping for a while, we met again about dawn and decided how we were to conduct negotiations at the next interview. We were convinced that it was wrong to delegate the duty to one member alone. Better that all should frame our questions and all together receive his answers. End quote. I'm telling you, this, the whole thing, Uh, Michael Sellos, it doesn't read like some archaic document. Given the translations, it still reads more like a, a vivid account and less like a propaganda piece. And I think its own reality is somewhere between those two. But I get the distinct feeling that Michael Sellos isn't fudging the truth all that much here. Nothing is a stretch given what we know of Isaac Komnenos. Now, from here, Celis says that when the sun had risen almost overhead, they were finally summoned to Isaac's tent. However, this time, Isaac received his guests in a different tent, a much, much larger tent. And it was an imposing sight, to say the least, as hundreds of armed soldiers were quietly standing in concentric circles around the tent. No, really, it was, apparently, it was deadly quiet. Celis writes, quote, not a sound was heard from any of them. Every man stood stiffly to attention in an attitude of fear, their eyes steadily fixed on the soldier who was in charge at the door of the tent. End quote. Each soldier brandished a different weapon, too. Swords, lances, and even something called a rumphaya, which I admit I had to look up myself. It, it turns out that the rumphaya was a common weapon, also known at the time as a Thracian sword as it was first recorded in the region of Thrace as early as 400 BC. From the long handle, the blade is straight until the last third or, or so of it, where it curls sharply backward. It's a pretty long sword too, but it's a sword not necessarily for thrusting, rather more for cutting and slashing in large overhead hacking motions. It was heavy too, as it was normally forged using iron, so it wasn't exactly conducive to also wielding a shield. It was a two-handed weapon. I suppose it's the Greco-Roman equivalent to the battle axe used by many Vikings and Varangians. So when they were led into the tent, the sight that they... You know what? Let's just let Cellos do, do the talking here, because it's just masterfully written. Here we go. Quote, After a short pause, he came out again and without a single word to us threw open the tent door suddenly. The sight that met our eyes within was astonishing. It was so unexpected and truly it was an imperial spectacle capable of overawing anyone. First, our ears were deafened by the roars of the army, but their voices were not all raised at once. The front rank acclaimed him first, then the second took up the cry, then the next rank, and so on. Each rank, uttered its own cry with a different intonation from the rest. Then then, after the last circle had shouted, there was one great united roar which hit us like a clap of thunder almost. End quote. Just wanted to give myself a pause there. Okay. Cellas continues quote, When they eventually grew quiet, they gave us leisure to observe what was inside the tent, for we had not immediately entered when the door was thrown open but stood at some distance waiting for the signal to go in i will describe that scene the emperor himself was seated on a couch decorated with two headrests the couch was raised on a high platform and overlaid with gold under his feet was a stool a magnificent robe gave him an air of great distinction very proudly he held up his head and puffed out his chest, an effort that caused his cheeks to take on a deep red tinge, while his eyes, with their faraway gaze, showed plainly that he was thinking profoundly and wholly given to his own meditations. Then the fixed gaze relaxed, and it was as if he had come from troubled deeps to the calm of some haven. All around him were circles on circles of warriors. The nearest circle and the smallest ones was composed of the most important persons, the leading representatives of the nobility, men who rivaled the stately grandeur of the ancient heroes. End quote. So I'm going to skip ahead here, though, personally. I'm kind of loving this. I loved reading it. But we get the idea. Michael Sellis loved the hear, to hear the sound of his own voice, that's for sure. After going into copious description of the various types of warriors present, and where they came from, and what they wore, and all that, Cellus finally gets to the point, the whole reason why he was sent out of Constantinople and into the enemy encampment. He writes, quote, When we had passed through the space between the first and second circle, and were quite near him, he again asked us the same questions as before. And being satisfied with our replies, he continued in a louder voice. He said, quote, Well now, Let one of you turn about and stand in the midst of these men here, pointing to those who stood about him on either side, and put in my hand the letter from him who has sent you. You can also tell me the message that you have brought to us here. At this each of us declined the honor of making reply, and each asked the others to do so instead of himself. We held the conference among ourselves, and my two companions pressed the duty on me. I was best equipped, they said, for speaking freely because, unlike themselves, I was a philosopher. They would come to my aid if, by any chance, my arguments were refuted. So I at once calmed the beating of my heart and stepped into the middle, collected my wits, and gave him the letter." End quote. Sellers sure takes his time in this narrative, but this meticulous detail serves a central purpose. Selos. Remember, as many chroniclers do, he's writing this record well after the event. When he puts ink to paper he already knows the outcome of this meeting. In fact, he knows the outcome to the entire ordeal. So we can't lose sight of this fact if we want to fully understand the manner in which he's narrating this moment in history. This meeting is a monumentally important moment in Byzantine history, though on the surface it's much like others that sought to overthrow one ruler for another. This particular meeting, however, this, this one just feels <laughs> different, especially when you look at the rest of Byzantine history. Celis tells us that he laid the emperor's deal out in crystal clear detail about Isaac becoming Caesar, but not emperor. All of it. Celis writes, quote, Those who stood near us received this preamble with satisfaction and held their peace, but the crowd in our rear shouted as one man that they refused to acknowledge any other role for their leader but that of emperor. Probably because he wished to avoid the appearance of disagreeing with the mob, the emperor supported their objection, using precisely the same words, end quote. Now you'll notice Cellus used the term, the emperor, betraying the fact that, as I said, he was writing this in recollection of a past event. So, he should have said, spoiler alert. Now, from here, there's some pretty good back and forth between Cellus and Isaac. Some of it, according to Cellus, was actually pretty testy. But in the end, Isaac dismissed the assembly and pulled Cellus aside for a private consultation. He said that Isaac, in low tones, asked him if the imperial attire he currently donned was even his idea. He declared that he would run from this whole situation if he could. The last thing he wanted was to overthrow the emperor, let alone become one. Celis says that Isaac said he was, quote-unquote, hemmed in on all sides. Now, again, writing this from the future and focusing more on Emperor Isaac's legacy, Celis was creating an origin story for Isaac of the reluctant rebel, a man who never sought power but nevertheless found himself the only man who could wield it properly and effectively. The deal the two men hatched right there, in an aside to history, would change the flow of dealings. Isaac required, in order for this whole rebellion to subside, he required that he be named Michael VI one and only heir, and that it would be Isaac who would have control to fill the majority of civilian and military posts, not Michael. Now, this wasn't ideal to Isaac's followers, but it might do the trick to quell any further animosity or bloodshed. Isaac suggests they have two messages, one written down that his men would read, the other a message memorized by all three envoys and divulged to no one but the emperor in a private audience. From here, the men agreed and dined together that night. Celis marvels, his word, not mine marvels at Isaac's quote, perfect manners for the man condescended to us in a most friendly way. There was nothing, he continued, there was nothing of the proud tyrant about him, end quote. The next morning at dawn, the three envoys were led safely and respectfully out of the rebel camp and accompanied to the trireme upon which they would board and sail back to Constantinople. That evening, When the three envoys had a private audience with the emperor, Michael VI was recorded as saying, Well, let him have whatever he wants. He can even wear a crown. That'll give him more prestige than ever. He wears a garland now, not a crown, but there. He can have it, however unusual it may be for a Caesar. He must exercise power together with myself. He must share in the appointments to offices. A special imperial tent will have to be set aside for his use, and a noble bodyguard must be allowed for his protection. And as for those who have served with him on this rebellious campaign, each of them can retain with impunity whatever privileges Isaac has granted him, money or property or high office. What have I promised? What I have promised shall be ratified in writing and by word of mouth. It shall be carried out. I will have documents drawn up and sealed. I will, moreover, sear an oath never to break these promises in, in any particular." End quote. Kind of dismissive, but at the same time, sounds like a done deal, right? Well, the very next day, Michael Sellis finds himself back on the boat and walking into Isaac's tent. Isaac had the message read aloud for all to hear, and by all accounts, it was received well. Isaac would become Caesar with full privileges and he would also be named the emperor's immediate heir. So yeah, done deal. Cellos writes that quote, "It was not yet evening before some messengers arrived from the camp and gathered round Isaac's tent with what was no doubt good news for the Caesar." End quote. It turns out that a plot had been hatched in the wake of the battle of Petro, reportedly unbeknownst to Cellos but no one's really sure about that one. And just that morning, as Celus was sailing, the emperor was forced to, quote, put aside his imperial robes and fly for refuge to the church of Sancta Sophia, end quote. Sancta Sophia, that is, the highest Sophia we know today. The same place where Isaac's whole rebellion was initially forged, actually. But get this, Celus, Isaac's, all those assembled to hear the news, not a single person believed it. Celis says, quote, This tale had no great effect on Isaac, nor were we very much perturbed by it then. We imagined the whole story to be a fiction, and we turned to our own affairs. But the first bearers of good tidings had not dispersed before others came up. And then again others, one after another, all confirming the truth of the rumor, End quote. Then Celis tells us that, One of Isaac's officers just received his own faithful servant back from an errand to the city, and a vivid account of things was told, quote, apparently certain seditious and troublesome persons, and here he mentioned individuals who, as we ourselves know quite well, had insinuated themselves into the favor with the Senate. These persons, he said, had first thrown the city into a turmoil and thoroughly upset the government, threatened peaceful citizens with burning and other misfortunes, stolen into the sacred precincts of Sancta Sophia and dared to violate its sanctuary. And then, after enlisting the sympathies of the patriarch, without any opposition from him, had made him the leader of their faction. After which, with wild shouts of exultation, they called down curses on the emperor, uttered all kinds of slander to discredit him, and hailed Isaac as alone worthy of ruling the empire. That said, or that said he, was all this informant knew. But if anything further had happened since, no doubt we should soon hear of it. End quote. Soon, though, yet another runner approached with yet another tale. This one, after catching his breath, relayed the fact that the emperor had indeed abdicated, in fact, this guy had personally seen Michael VI himself, quote, become an ordinary citizen. And soon afterwards, he had been dressed in the coarse cowl of a monk with no outward sign of imperial rank, end quote. Then a handful more men ran up with the same exact story. Now that night, Isaac must have been racked with the thought that this might all be a terrible Terrible ruse, a trick to get him into the city. Michael VI had already shown disdain and a complete disregard for military personnel. What would make this series of stories out of character for a man like that? Isaac's officers were, according to Sellis, much more relaxed, but he was unsure as to how they spent their nights. Were they partying? Were they just having a stoic reserve? Were they still left questioning like Isaac must have been? As for him, Celis Celis was terrified. He writes, To me, life seemed hopeless, and I thought it was a matter of minutes before I should be sacrificed like a beast. You see, I knew that everyone was violently angry with me. There could be no escape. I would perish miserably, and all manner of throat-slitting and maiming would be my lot above all i was afraid of my new emperor perhaps he would recall the things i had said to him and how i had persuaded him to remain an ordinary citizen probably he would subject me to all kinds of vengeance and torture so while everyone else had dropped off to sleep i waited in solitude for my executioners at the slightest sound of a voice or any noise round about my tent I was at once petrified with fear, thinking death was at hand. End quote. Sure, it's pretty hyped up, but I do feel that it was also a little glimpse into the life of an envoy a thousand years ago. Celis, as I said, definitely loves to hear the sound of his own voice, but I just get the impression that there is a lot of truth to all of what he's saying right here. And that night, it, it must have been absolutely terrifying. He was an emissary of the former emperor, currently in the heart of the new emperor's encampment. What else was he to do but wait until death opened up his tent and dragged him out? It turns out that that's not what happened. At sunrise, the entire camp was marching out toward Constantinople. Celis began riding at the very back of the army, a place worthy for an enemy or prisoner. However, within the hour, Isaac had sent for Celis to be brought to the front, to him. Much to Celis' surprise, Isaac spoke candidly and openly. Sellus tells us that Isaac was asking his personal opinions about proper governance and confiding in him the real problems with the empire. It seemed that Isaac knew a winner when he saw one, just like Michael Celis. Sellus narrates Isaac's entrance into Constantinople next, Word of the battle, word of the emissaries, word of the emperor's abdication, word of the rebel general's approach. They'd all traveled throughout the city, and the people were apparently pretty damn thrilled to welcome their new leader. Celis writes, All the populace of the city poured out to honor him. Some brought lighted torches, as though he were God himself. Others sprinkled sweet perfumes over him. Everyone, in his own peculiar way, tried to please him. Without exception, the people regarded the occasion as a festal day. There was dancing and rejoicing everywhere. You would think Isaac's entry into the capital was some revelation of the deity himself. But how could I, in a few brief words, describe to you the magnificence of that wonderful sight? I've taken my part in many imperial processions, and I have assisted at ceremonies of a mere religious character But in all my life I have never seen such splendor. It was not merely the people of the city, nor the senate, nor the host of farmers and merchants that made up that happy throng. There were students of the theological colleges there, and dwellers on the mountaintops, and hermits who had left their communal homes in the carved rock tombs. The stylites, too, who lived in mid-air, joining in the crowds, all of them, whether they had slipped out from their rocks or come down from their aerial perches or exchanged the mountain heights for the level plains, all made the emperor's procession into the city a most memorable sight, quote. We have heard a lot from Michael Cellos and his book Chronographia on today's episode. I encourage all of you to pick it up it reads like nothing you'd ever think would have been written a thousand years ago. It's an exceptional chronicle, biased though it may be at times. But I want to end this episode with just one more quote. It's a big one, but one more quote from Celus's Chronographia, if I may. See, the date was September 1st, 1057, and a new dynasty was born. It wouldn't be as simple as Isaac takes over, and the Komneni reigned supreme for centuries no that would be too simple but the Komneni dynasty would trace its roots back to this date and the preceding events this date it seemed almost too fantastical but it was certainly in the realm of possibility people needed a new leader they sought a new leader. They convinced others of their choice of a new leader, and the old leader was ousted in order for the new leader to ascend. It's a tale told, untold times throughout his, throughout human history. Why would Isaac Komneni's rise be any different? But Celis has an interesting back and forth with the new emperor as they rode into town, while the perfumes were sprayed, the flowers were strewn about the streets in front of them as the music played and the people shouted support, and they sang songs rejoicing their new fortune all around them. Side note, it's it's worth noting for context about what's about to be said, uh, the geography of Constantinople. Constantinople, if you remember at the time, was on the European side of the strait. In the next narration, in, in Cellus's quote, we find Isaac and Sellus riding toward the city that was on the Asian side of that strait, Nicomedia. They would need to board a boat to make the crossing of the Bosporus to the city proper. So, I just wanted to offer a little context for you because that'll come up here. The conversation, in Sellus' words, went like this, Quote, Isaac himself was neither deceived by his hollow triumph nor unduly elated. His first reaction was to suspect the extraordinary changes in his fortunes. It was typical of the man's shrewd perception. He was still meditating on the subject when he turned and spoke to me rather unexpectedly. Philosopher, he said, this amazing piece of good luck seems to me a fickle business. In my heart, I am not at all sure it will have a happy ending. The thought of a philosopher, I answered, but fortunate beings are not invariably followed by disaster. If fate has set a limit, it is not for us to probe. In fact, my acquaintance with learned books and propitiatory prayers tells me that if a man betters his condition, he's merely following his destiny. When I say that I am, of course, expressing the doctrine of the Hellenis, For according to our Christian faith, nothing is predetermined, nothing foreordained in our lives. Nevertheless, there is a logical connection between effects and their immediate causes. Once you change that philosophical outlook, however, or become elated with pride because of these glories, divine justice will assuredly oppose your plans, and very quickly at that. So long as your heart is not filled with pride, You can take courage, for God is not jealous where He gives us blessings. On the contrary, He has many a time set men on the path of glory by one swift move. But setting aside all such considerations, my own case offers a fine opportunity for you to exercise justice. Make a good start and bear no malice for the reckless speeches I made as an envoy. I was obeying an emperor's command. And I served him well. So it was not through any ill will toward you, but in loyalty to Michael, that I argued as I did. Now that ends Celis's quote there. But the chronographia's quote continues. At these words his eyes filled with tears. Do not speak so, he said, for I appreciated your tongue then when you spoke in insolence more than now when it praises and flatters. However, I will make a beginning, as you suggest, with your case. In fact, I regard you as first among my friends, and I will mark the occasion with a special honor, the title to you of President of the Senate. That's end quote for Isaac. While we were talking, the sun had already reached its zenith, and we saw the gulf on which we were to sail. The Imperial Galley came into sight. Isaac pelted with flowers, and deafened with cries of good luck, immediately went on board and made his triumphal progress across the sea from the Propontis to the Imperial Palace. Even in the midst of these preparations, he remained seated by us. So, with all due legal sanction, Isaac Comnenos succeeded to the throne. The emperor, Michael the Aged, had spent one whole year in power, he died soon after his abdication, a private citizen. End quote. So on this episode, we've witnessed the birth of the last great imperial dynasty in Byzantine history. Mark the occasion. Constantinople and the Eastern Roman Empire would not fall for another 400 years. And they would certainly have some great moments ahead of them. But make no mistake, Isaac Komnenos the crusty general, the reluctant rebel, just established the last great house the ancient empire would see. So, how will House Comnenos carry the proud Eastern Roman torch into the future? Well, let's not jump the gun quite yet, but all the same, I can't wait to tell you about it.